here's a question. If you were a Catholic, why would you never let a Catholic priest into your wine cellar? It's a good question, isn't it? Probably one you weren't thinking I was going to ask today. So why do you, if you were a good Catholic, why would you never let a priest into your wine cellar? Here's the answer. Because if the priest prayed for the wine, it would turn into the blood of Jesus. And then only a priest could drink it. So medieval tradition tells us. Interesting, isn't it? So imagine if you had an extensive, wonderful, expensive collection of red wine. And the priest prayed for it, and then you couldn't drink it, nor your friends or family. I mean, is this true? Is there any truth to this? When I, as a Presbyterian minister, pray for the the grape juice at communion, does it turn into the actual blood of Jesus? Well, we're going to answer this question and some others as we open up a most puzzling section of Scripture. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, as always, we come humbly asking that your Holy Spirit will open us the joy and the wonder of Jesus and what you would have us hear this morning. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning's passage in 1 Peter is made up of of two parts. Uh, The first part is relatively straightforward, and the second part is a real head-scratcher. So I'll read both of the sections together, and then we'll dive in from there. And so... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Did you notice how that passage started off rather sensibly and then got really confusing, didn't it? The first part is relatively straightforward, but the second part, like I said, is a a real head-scratcher. And no matter how many times you read that, you're still thinking, what's happening here? What's about these spirits in prison and Noah's Ark and all this? What have they got? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the second part, the more difficult part first, and then we'll go and have a look at the first part, which is a bit more straightforward. So first of all, preaching to the spirits in prison. Now, before we start in this, a qualifier. When we look at the Bible, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Now, everyone, even the most knowledgeable Bible teacher and scholar has parts of the Bible that they don't fully understand. And that's okay, because God makes plain what he wants us to make main. Take the great commandment. The great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Plain and straightforward, central important, isn't it? Love God, love your neighbor. And so for, as Christians, we need to spend more of our energy learning to put this into practice, what is plain, than spending hours on the obscure passages. God's made the plain things the main things. So saying, God must have had a really good reason to include 
this puzzling passage in the Bible. And so since we're preaching through 1 Peter, we're going to consider briefly what it is, knowing that as Jesus preached to the spirits in prison, this is not the main thing. We will not make it the main thing. Now, when it comes to understanding what happened when Jesus died and then preached to the spirits in prison, there are three commonly accepted interpretations, and we're going to look at each one of those. So the first common interpretation is that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the spirits of those people who were alive in Noah's day and then perished in the flood. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that's the second of Peter's letters, he refers to Noah as a preacher. And the implication is that while Noah was spending decades and decades with his sons building the ark, he preached that the people should repent of their wickedness. If you remember the story, people were so wicked that God was grieved in his heart that he had even made them. So because Noah was the only righteous person he could find, he asked him and his sons to build the ark. But during that time, people no doubt came and said, you're mad, why are you building this huge boat miles away from any water? And then you would imagine that Noah then said, it's because of your wickedness. Turn and do the right thing. Repent. However, none of them did. And so they drowned. So the first interpretation is that as soon as Jesus breathed his last, he went down to these spirits of the dead people and preached to them. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is that Jesus did the preaching himself through Noah in Noah's day. You see, if we were to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, we are told that the prophets had the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Christ in them when they prophesied, helping them point to Messiah. This means that prophets like Noah and Moses and Isaiah all had the spirit of Jesus in them, who was revealing to him or them God's word. And it was a bit of a jigsaw puzzle that they were striving to put together. However, the jigsaw puzzle has only now become complete since Christ came. So this interpretation says that it was the spirit of Jesus preaching through Noah in Noah's day. And that's what this passage is referring to. That's the second most common interpretation. The third most common interpretation is that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the fallen angels. Remember in the Apostles' Creed, there's that line that says that Jesus descended into hell. And if so, what did he preach to the fallen angels? Well, he proclaimed his triumph and his victory over sin and death. He also proclaimed the defeat of Satan and the inability of Satan and all his hordes to thwart, to stop the eternal purposes of God. So these are the three common interpretations, and I'm sure some of you may be interested in where I lean on this. And so I lean to the third interpretation, and I'll briefly explain why. First of all, when the word spirits, plural, is used in the Bible without qualification, it always refers to supernatural beings. Obviously, if it says the spirits of men, then that's different. But if it's just the word spirits, plural, it means supernatural beings. Secondly, Hebrew tradition refers to rebellious angels being imprisoned around the time of the flood, just before the flood. Now, that's Hebrew tradition, 
though it is referred to in the New Testament. And so Peter and his readers would have been familiar to this. So let's look at this reference to the angels, the fallen angels, being imprisoned at the time of the flood. And we see this again in Peter's second letter, chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. So in his second letter. But if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and then that list goes on. But do you notice how, again, Peter connects the fallen angels being imprisoned with Noah and the flood? Not just this, a couple of pages over too, in Jude, in Jude 6. Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And notice this all connecting with Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. You see, when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished, breathing his last, Jesus didn't spend the next three days lying around in the tomb. He no, straight away the temple curtain dividing the holy of holies from the rest of the temple was split from top to bottom. As soon as Jesus breathed his last, as soon as Jesus breathed his last, godly people who had recently died and were buried around Jerusalem were raised up from the grave. And people saw them immediately after Jesus breathed his last. And immediately after Jesus breathed his last, he was made alive in the spirit and descended and proclaimed his victory in the depths of hell. Yes, even before the body of Jesus was raised on the third day, Jesus was limitless. He was in control from that moment on. He didn't have to wait around to be raised again. So Jesus, being made alive in the Spirit, went down to these fallen angels and declared to them his triumph and their defeat. So, out of the three commonly accepted interpretations, this is where I lean. Now, you may lean towards one of the other interpretations or even something else. So, there we have it. Anyway, let's move on to the, the part that's a little bit easier to understand, having considered this head-scratcher and probably confused a few of you. Hopefully, if some of you are interested, then we'll think about it and maybe even do a bit of your own research. But anyway, let's move on to something that's much more straightforward. Verse 18, which is a plain thing, and so it is a main thing. So verse 18 of 1 Peter, chapter 3. For Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Here we have the truth, the good news of the gospel summarized in one sentence. We are reminded that central to our faith is the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus' death was just not a tragic accident, just wasn't. And Jesus' death was just not a heroic example to inspire us. No, Jesus' death was much more 
than just an example. Jesus' death was to free us from our sins, to set us free. Romans 6.23 is clear. For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the grim news is that by default, every person born is destined to eternal death. For we all who are born will eventually die and die in our sins to everlasting punishment. This is terrible news. It is grim news beyond measure and beyond imagination. However, the good news of the gospel, as laid out here in verse 18, is that Jesus died for our sins, he who was right with God, righteous, and he died for us who are not right with God, the unrighteous. And Isaiah 53 puts it so wonderfully like this. Isaiah wrote these words some five or six hundred years before Jesus came. Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Yes, because Christ died once for all, all who believe in Jesus and call him Lord are brought near to God. Isn't that wonderful? If we go back to Adam and Eve and we think of uh, God walking in the cool of the evening and speaking to Adam and Eve, and then that was lost because of their rebellion. Well, because Christ died to bring us close to God, this relationship that Adam and Eve had is not only restored to each of us, but enhanced because now we are daughters and sons of the living God. And this once for all phrase that is tucked up in this verse carries more weight than you can imagine. Let me tell you why. Now, all the people Peter was writing to knew about sacrifices, and they knew that for a religious sacrifice to be effective, it had to be regular and repeated. didn't matter whether you were a Jew or a non-Jewish person. Everybody in Jesus' day and Peter's day were sacrificing regularly and repeatedly. Take the Jewish uh, sacrificial system. Once a year, the high priest would make a sacrifice for the sin, sins of God's people. We read this in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7. But only the high priest entered the inner room, that's the Holy of Holies, and into the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself, and for sins of the people had committed in ignorance. So once a year, every year, the high priest would offer blood sacrifice to the people. He would enter into the holy place, the temple, where te priests were every day. But then once a year, he was allowed through the curtain into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a bull. And there he would offer the sacrifice of blood for the sins of people. And they would be forgiven. However, the priests knew and the people knew that as soon as he left the Holy of Holies, that he would have to do that again next year. But all this changed with the death of Jesus and his resurrection. For in the heavenly Holy of Holies, Jesus, who is both the high priest and the sacrifice, imagine that, he's both the high priest 
and the sacrifice took his blood into the heavenly holy of holies. And we see this in verse 11 of Hebrews 9. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, another word for a temple, that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of creation. Verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Once for all. Jesus gave up his life once. He offered his blood once for the forgiveness of our sins. So that when we come daily, I hope, to confess that we have fallen short, we are forgiven. But it was because Jesus died once for all. Because of the power and the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus, he does not need to be re-sacrificed every time we sin. Now this was a huge change, paradigm shift for people in New Testament days for Peter and the other Christians, because they were expecting to sacrifice regularly. And the Bible here and in other places makes it very clear that Jesus died once for our sins. When we confess and repent, Christ's blood that has been poured out covers, cleanses, renews and restores. Now this is where the Protestant churches, like the Presbyterian Church and Baptist and Brethren and other Protestant churches, where we differ from the Roman Catholic Church. And we see this when it comes, especially when it comes to communion. For the Roman Catholic Church believes that every time they celebrate Mass, Jesus is re-sacrificed. He's re-crucified every time they have Mass. Mass is uh, equivalent or similar to our communion. That when the priest prays for the bread and the wine at Mass, the bread turns into the actual physical body of Jesus and the wine turns into the actual physical blood of Jesus. This is why Roman Catholics always use wafers so there are no crumbs left behind because you can't have crumbs of Jesus on the preparation table left behind. And this is why the priest will drink all of the leftover wine at the end of the service. He better better get it right. If he thinks that there's 150 people turn up and only 20, that's a lot of wine he has to drink. (laughs) Exactly. And so there is a little bit of a cliche of Roman Catholic priests (laughs) enjoying their their alcohol. Uh, So what happens is the wafer and the wine is normal until the priest prays for it. Once the priest prays for it, in their mind, Jesus has been re-sacrificed and becomes the actual body and the blood of Jesus. So, theoretically, if you did let a Catholic priest into your wine cellar and he blessed that wine, then that wine could not now be used for common use. It could only be used to celebrate Mass. And this is portrayed visually as well when it comes to how Protestants and Catholics symbolise the cross. So you will have noticed, I'm sure, that in Catholic churches and on Catholic churches, Jesus is always depicted, or the cross is always depicted with Jesus on it. Call this the crucifix. And the fact is the Roman Catholics always have Jesus on the cross in their churches reinforces the fact is that he has been re-sacrificed every time they take Mass. 
However, Protestant churches never have the crucifix on their building or in their building. If you have a look to your right, you'll see the empty cross because Jesus died once for all and he is no longer on the cross. So that's sort of a, a visual re a visual emphasis on the difference between Catholics and Presbyterians. Now this re-sacrificing of Jesus was one of the reasons why the Roman priest Martin Luther started causing such a fuss that led to the Reformation and the splitting away of the Roman church. So as a priest, Luther knew on the one hand that the Bible was very clear that Jesus died once for our sins, and on the other hand, every time he led Mass, then he was told that he was re-crucifying Jesus. And so, Luther objected. He objected to this, and he objected to the selling of indulgences, and so he challenged the church. Now, Luther never wanted to split away from the church. He hoped that the Roman Catholic Church would listen to reason, listen to the biblical truth, and change their ways. But they never did. And so uh, he was kicked out, excommunicated, and the Protestant movement was born, and that's what we are part of. So when a Presbyterian minister prays for the bread and the wine at communion, what we're doing is asking that God will set aside the elements from common use to a special use. But there was no mystical changing of one substance into another. There is an acknowledgement. I always ask that the Holy Spirit will set aside the bread and the wine so that it can become for us the blood or for us the blood and the body of Jesus. However, it's still bread and it's still grape juice. What we're doing is we're asking that the Holy Spirit will make these common elements real to us in the sense of making Jesus alive to us. Now, I'm not saying this to uh, stir up division between us and our Catholic friends. Uh, we and the Catholics have many core common beliefs that are important, but I raise the difference to help us understand the implications of what Christ dying once means, especially when it comes to communion. Now, let's pull all this together. What have we looked at today? Well, we've explored what happened when Jesus breathed his last Straight away, the temple curtain dividing us, um, the barrier between us and God was split in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that it was God that was making this happen. And straight away, when Jesus breathed his last, a number of godly people who had recently died and were buried rose from the grave and came to the city of Jerusalem. And straight away, being made alive in the spirit, Jesus preached to imprisoned spirits. We've been scratching our head what this means and we've looked at uh, three possibilities. It could be that Jesus preached to the spirits of the people, the humans that perished in the flood. It could mean it's referring to when the spirit of Jesus preached through Noah in Noah's day. Or it could mean that Jesus descended into hell and proclaimed his victory to the fallen angels that had been imprisoned there about the time of the flood. Now, however interesting or maybe confusing this may be, we're very, it's very important that we make the plain things the main things. And that's the first part of our passage, verse 18, where it reminded us that Jesus died for a reason. 
And the reason was for our sins. Jesus, who was right with God, died for us who are not right with God. Why? And this is the good news of the gospel. Why? To bring us back to God. To recreate that relationship Adam and Eve had and enhance it because we are now sons and daughter. And this is why Jesus died on the cross. And what a joy to know that that veil, that had, um, that barrier that meant that no one could have free relationship with God is now split from top to bottom and we have open access to our Heavenly Father. And in his death, in the death of Christ, we're reminded that it's a once for all. And so unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, all the Roman Catholic view, Christ's death was, has dealt with our wretched sin and our corrupt heart once and for all. And as I said before, daily we come to Christ and ask for forgiveness, but he's never re-crucified because the blood that was shed out on Calvary some 2,000 years ago is sufficient for our forgiveness and love and acceptance by our Heavenly Father. And this is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the treasures and the riches in your word. And uh, we, some of us, we're just going to park that bit about Jesus preaching to the spirits. But the other part, Lord, about Jesus dying for our sins once for all to bring us close to you, well, that's what we can get a handle of. That's what we can celebrate. That's what we rejoice in. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you have done to bring us into your kingdom as dearly loved daughters and sons. May we never take this for granted. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.